she had the abortions, then she had did the adoption. And if you were going to believe the prosecution case, she then murdered the fourth child and then reverted back to adoption for the fifth child. So forensically you go, okay, there's no evidence of any crime, but behaviorally, when you lay that layer on top, that's not what people do. In this episode of Exploring Violence in Society, you will hear from forensic anthropologist and criminologist, Dr. Xanthi Mallet. Because I think a lot of true crime is all too quick to tell the audience what to think. Whereas actually what I want to do, whether it's in my teaching or writing or television shows, is to really just get the audience to think. This is a show for critical and imaginative conversations about complex social issues. My name is Ben Lohmeyer and welcome to Exploring Violence and Society. So a massive welcome to my guest today, Dr. Zanthi Mallet. Morning, Zanthi. Morning. Now for a little bit of an introduction for you, I'm going to read a little bit of uh, you know, your history, your biography. So Zanthi is a senior lecturer and convener of criminology at the University of Newcastle. She studied archaeological science for her undergrad degree, a Master's of Biological Anthropology at the University of Cambridge, and has a PhD in Forensic Facial Recognition from the University of Sheffield, which was through a joint scholarship from the University and the FBI. So her combination of expertise creates a fairly unique picture of violence and social issues. Um, Xanthi is also passionate about utilising the media to explore cold cases and has been involved in projects including the True Crime Cold Case television series for the BBC called History Cold Case, which was adapted by, for the US uh, by National Geographic and retitled as The Decryptors. And here in Australia she's done some work with Channel 10's 2014 Wanted series. So Xanthi, you are a forensic anthropologist and criminologist. Can you tell us what that means? What is a forensic anthropologist and criminologist? Well, they're, they're two things, really. So my background is in forensic science. Um, so as you said, I did biology um, for basically masters and PhD, and it had a forensic application, which basically means it could be used to produce evidence for court. So my particular expertise is identifying human remains and individuals from images. Um, that could be CCTV images, or it could be images being distributed across the internet where people are committing crimes. It's often child sexual abuse crimes. So that has a forensic application in that they can then be used in court to help build a case against somebody, or in fact refute it, so by prosecution or defense. So that's the kind of hard science part of forensic anthropology. So forensic pertaining to the court, anthropology, study of man. And then the criminology part is much more of a social science so that's really about understanding human behavior and interaction and why people commit crimes why people are victimized etc so really it's bringing together the hard science of forensics and the social sciences to understand how crime scenes present the way they do because of the way that people interact with them oh great okay um so that would that combination of expertise would create a fairly unique picture of uh, violence because uh, you, like you said you're taking the images plus behaviour. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, maybe again yeah, even give us an example of how that's created a different picture for a crime scene or provide a different evidence for for a courtroom? Yeah. Okay. Well, recently I was working with Channel Nine, actually the most recent television series I've worked on, on a case called um, about a guy called Philip Vasili, who was an Australian podiatrist, and he made millions of dollars making inserts for shoes. 
very successful Western Sydney suburbs boy, you know, made it good. Um, yeah, wow. But he was murdered in 2015 in his home in the Bahamas. My role within that series was to interpret the crime scene because we had the evidence from the court case because uh, currently his wife was accused, found guilty of his murder, but then acquitted. So currently it's an unsolved case. So that's why we were covering it for a series called Murder, Lies and Alibis. Right. So my role was to assess the crime scene information from the court case, look at the forensic pathology, so what injuries he had, etc., and to give that a context within the crime itself. So who was, who was in that scene, who had access to him, who would have committed a crime like this behaviorally, looking at his injuries. And so combining the forensic crime scene evidence with the behavioral evidence from what happened initially building up to that crime scene and afterwards to really try and pick apart what happened or potentially happened, who were our main suspects, judged on those two things, the evidence, you know, forensic and, um, and criminological. Theory. Sorry, what was the name of the intelligence series that, that was Murder, part of? Murder, Lies and Alibis. Murder, Lies and Alibis. Okay. Uh, so did you come to a different conclusion uh, than, than what was originally part of the, the court case? You said his wife was, uh, was accused but then acquitted. So did you come to a different conclusion than what they had come to? Well, we had to leave it open because um, even if you think there's a main suspect, you have to be very careful what you suggest in a television program. Obviously, sure. I don't really want to be sued. So what I did was go through all of the different potential scenarios. So one of the scenarios was that a stranger had broken in, for example. So we looked at the scene again, and this is the murder actually happened in a gated compound with 24 hour security. The house had, only had accessibility through a locked gate or via a beach. And so looking at the likelihood of somebody breaking in and where Philip was actually sitting on the property, he would have been able to see the beach and the park. So we could discount that. Then we looked at other possibilities of somebody coming around to see him that wasn't the wife. She was the last known person to see him, but we had CCTV evidence. So it was really a case of going through the different scenarios and looking at the evidence and saying, this doesn't fit because, or this does fit because. So you're not coming to a conclusion saying, we think this person did it, but on the balance of probability, we can discount these examples and we can't discount these other ones. And let the audience make up their mind because I think a lot of true crime is all too quick to tell the audience what to think. Whereas actually what I want to do, whether it's in my teaching or writing or television shows, is to really just get the audience to think, you know, make up their own mind, give them the information, they're intelligent people let them decide what they think for themselves rather than you know treating them just like idiots who are going to sit there and just listen to you well you know here's the evidence what do you think that's great i love that approach um, and part of what i'm really interested in in the combination of expertise that you've got and what you uh, just described about encouraging people to think is it seems like uh, the your your uh, combination of skills offers a new perspective but it also in a way complexifies the picture you know it brings in like you talked about social dynamics human behavioral dynamics that uh, you know maybe traditionally we haven't thought about when you think about crime you just look for a piece of evidence that is incriminating uh, and that, that violence takes place by a certain type of person but your your expertise seems to make that a little bit yeah, more complex a little bit more nuanced is that fair to say um, well 
think it's quite unusual mixture of having the hard science background and social sciences and people seem to think that that's a bit strange go well you know you grew up being good at biology and all of those kind of you know very sciencey and very logical and then behavioral sciences as you know is it's not you don't get straight answers to questions it all it is very nuanced and so being able to combine the two i think is quite unusual i don't know anyone else who are forensic scientists who also do the social science kind of behavioral side but to me they're two parts of the same thing if you look at the scene and you can see the forensic evidence and how that presents well it's only the way it is because of the way people interacted with it and and each other and that's what you're looking at so to understand the evidence you have to understand the people who created that evidence and so to me they literally are like yin and yang but other people don't seem to they seem to either be one side or the other behavioral or forensic but i just think that you have to understand both to to grasp what's really happening in an environment oh, that makes a lot of sense when you explain it that way um so as I'm, we're sitting here having this conversation i'm thinking about uh how do you got got into understanding both sides of this picture like you said most people seem to pick one and stick to it how did you become interested in both sides well it was actually when i was working in dundee in scotland we were doing quite a few cases looking at alleged child sexual abuse so i mentioned earlier about images now when people are taking images of themselves creating um this abuse material they're often not taking photos of their face it's often their hands abusing children and so we were initially asked as a forensic center if we could identify or at least provide evidence on whether people who were holding images were the person in the image or whether they were holding and distributing right and this normally occurs when people get viruses on their computers because they're sure. going to all these um dodgy websites and then they get viruses and then they have to take their virus or their computer to somewhere to be fixed and at that point sometimes they find these indecent images or it's intelligence led and they're found via the internet but they they have all these images and they go well we don't know whether that's you in those images or whether that's somebody else and that makes a difference to how they're prosecuted sure. so it's obviously all illegal but if somebody is creating those images themselves that's a higher level of illegality than mm -hmm. if they're distributing them and so i became interested in how these predominantly men but not always are seeking out kind of other individuals of the same um proclivity because you wonder how they're actually connecting to distribute these images in a kind of safe environment because you think this is such a risky behavior um how are they making these networks how are they grooming these children to, you know because a lot of them are groomed and this abuse can go on for years um mm -hmm. what kinds of individuals are actually perpetrating this abuse because it's not the the guys in the kind of grubby you know raincoats with horns and tails you know and so i became interested in who these men were that i was looking at anatomically to compare features to help identify them and i began to be interested in them and their victims and that's where the kind of behavioral element came in so it kind of grew from there really yeah okay that makes sense of the combination of um how to make sense of those images and and the kind of the other thing you said that I was really interested in was the who who the kind of people are that are doing these kind of crimes and as you said your your expertise and your knowledge is showing and and building on the idea that they're not the stereotypical kind of image we have of a pedophile or something like that but rather uh they're fair to say often fairly 
normal appearance people but with a certain level of social power and control? Is, is that the kind of image that we should be thinking of when we, when we start thinking about these perpetrators of these kind of violent crimes? Well, it depends on the type of crime. There's a whole gambit of individuals who commit violent crimes. So if you're looking at crimes against children, um, that could be about power and control. So if you look at Cardinal Pell as an example, I mean, that is the ultimate kind of authority where you could commit abuse and nobody's going to speak against you, you know, because of the levels of power you have and the fear that it's going to generate in especially young people to speak out. Um, so it can be that, but also it can be opportunistic. So we tend to call these individuals paedophiles, and paedophile literally means somebody who's sexually attracted to prepubescent children. But often we're finding that a child sex offender isn't actually necessarily attracted to children per se, but they're just victims who are um, available to them. So some of these sex offenders could be just as likely to abuse a child if that opportunity presents itself as you know as an elderly person because it's not really about the the dynamic or that it's not really about the attributes of that person the victim it's about the dominance and control and sexual gratification they get from you know abusing someone so mm -hmm. some are pedophiles some genuinely attracted to children others are sex offenders who predate on children because they are easy targets Wow. Okay, that's really interesting. And for me, I start thinking about you know we want to work to prevent or interrupt violence and, and crimes and these kind of abuses. Then it changes the not only the image of the person but also the context in which they take these crimes take place. Uh, so we, we're acting rather than just looking at individuals and trying to assess perhaps their risk or, or their likelihood of committing the crime, but the context in which we place people and the availability of, um, you know, uh, whether it be children or other vulnerable people to, to, be, pre to be preyed on. Is, is that fair to say? Yeah, context is everything. When it comes to any violent crime, it's always about the context. So people are victimised for all sorts of reasons, but often it's opportunistic. Um, that's not to say they're strangers because the vast majority of abuses against children aren't perpetrated by strangers. They're by neighbours, they're by people, you know, who run their sports teams, by your friends, you know. Um, even family, intra, you know, familial abuse is not unusual. Uncles, you know, brothers, even, and females too. I mean, it is predominantly males, but yeah, females too. So it's not that kind of stranger danger that people fear. Um, and those cases always make it to the media when somebody is abducted or snatched or abused by a stranger. But that's not generally what people need to be cautious of. It's the people in your circle, you know, in the, your kids' circle. Those are the ones who are more likely to harm them than, than a stranger. That's cheery, isn't it? Yeah, that's really... That's great. <laughs> I'm going to go home and worry about that now. Yeah, um, don't worry about that. <laughs> You mentioned uh, the media there and the way that they pick up certain stories and not others, and perhaps that uh, speaks a little bit to, to some of the, the fears I might carry home as well as the stories that make it to the media. But you use the media as well to try and address some of these cold cases or unsolved crimes. Um, how do you go about engaging with media, given the amount of uh, concern there is also around the media's role in perpetuating fear of crime and things like that? Yeah, well, I think there's, there's more than one type of media here. So you've got the news cycle 
obviously, which is like the six o'clock news or actually like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, they've all got their own kind of out feeds now. Um, and you've got that, and that's about clicks, isn't it? So they're going to pick up on all the violent crimes um, that are really going to get people to go, ooh. And basically, I think people are interested because they're kind of going, oh, I'm really glad that didn't happen to me. You know, I think that's why we're so engaged with those kind of violent crimes. And you know what? That's going to be more interesting than the break enters, isn't it? You know, so those are the ones that are in the news cycle that can cause what we call moral panics when, you know, something gets blown out of proportion. Um, we talk about immigration. That's a good example. You know, high on the this political scale at the moment. So that's going to be in the news cycle. Politicians will be feeding into that. Everyone gets scared about something that is not as much of a problem often um, as people may believe watching that news cycle. That's the instant news. And then you've got the kind of longer term format that's more investigative journalism that's really about trying to look at a story in more depth from multiple perspectives, see if you can learn something new about it. So it's really about picking it apart, going back through the evidence and seeing what we can learn and what we can share with the audience. And by doing that, sometimes you can actually generate more information and hopefully end up getting cold cases solved. So I did um, something on the Beaumont children's disappearance last year that aired, and that was for Channel 7, and it got 1.2 million viewers. So that case is 53 years old now. But there may be somebody out there that knows something. And if you can put it back into the, the cycle of interest, public interest, then you can generate potentially new leads that can move these cases forward. Because it can just be the tiniest thing that can lead to a case being solved. So I think there's more than one type of news. And obviously, all the news outlets have their own framing and lenses through which they will present stories as well. And that's really impactful on the audience. But when it's the longer format, you have more control and you have more opportunity to make sure that the information going out is realistic and it's not going to be just a voyeuristic, you know, walk through some terrible crime because these aren't stories, they're people's lives. They're the victims' lives and you can mm. never forget that. But if you can help move that case forward, then it's worth retelling that story, as it were, to try and um, hopefully solve that case. Excellent. Yeah, okay. Um, I did have a follow-up question for you, but I've forgotten what it is, and that's okay. It'll come back. <laughs> you, you mentioned earlier how you use both uh, images and human behaviour to uh, reinterpret crime. Uh, and so one of your recent publications is called Forensic Gate Analysis, uh, the Morphometric Assessment from Surveillance Footage. Can you tell us a little bit about what that means again and then how that works, that connection between the image and the human behaviour? Yep, so this is actually one of my PhD students' work. So she's, she's based at UTS, and she's looking at improving our ability to learn identification information about suspects from CCTV. Now, I, I said that very carefully. I didn't want to say identify suspects because that's not what we would do. I would never mm -hmm. do an analysis and say, yes, that's that person, because right. it could be that somebody else's gait pattern or, or walking, running pattern um, would match statistically with that person. But what you're saying is somebody in CCTV and somebody who's been arrested or a person of interest whose gate pattern we've then videoed can be compared and they, they have a number of similarities and there's nothing that excludes them from being the same person. What you can't say is, yes, they're one in the same person, basically. You have to 
because this is going to be evidence for court, it can't be biased against the individual. So we're basically saying, could it be the same person walking in that video away from that murder scene as the person you've arrested when you provided a comparative sample of them walking? So that's what that paper is about. And it's really, gate pattern is really interesting because it will often change after somebody's committed a crime. For example, you may have a murder scene where CCTV is everywhere, you know, it's prolific. So often you will have people walking down a pavement, for example, captured from personal CCTV cameras on houses. And then you may have the same person or appears to be the same person running the other way shortly after. And there'll be a violent crime somewhere in the neighborhood. So then you can look at the way they walked, the way they ran, compare it to somebody who's been arrested and provide evidence to suggest it is or is not the same person. And it's only a tiny part of a forensic investigation, but it can be impactful, especially when you say, we really don't think it is that person. You know, that's as powerful as saying it could well be the same individual. You know, excluding somebody is really valuable for the police because they then can change the way they may manage that operation, divert their resources in a different direction if they think that that person is actually not the individual they're looking for. So it's about understanding how people move within spaces before and after crimes, as well as looking at the physicality of how their body moves when it walks and moves when it runs. Wow, okay, so it can tell you, uh, it can give you a guide as to um, if somebody is likely to have been there, if it's likely to have been that person, if they're likely to have committed a crime, but it's not supposed to be the definitive answer per se. Exactly. Okay. It's similar um, with the fingerprint. So fingerprint evidence, people would say it's identification evidence, but it's not. It's an opinion. You know, a fingerprint expert will match certain points across a suspect print and a print from a scene, but it's still their opinion at the end of the day. It's not like a DNA match where it's run through and a computer does a like-for-like -like comparison and they are the same thing or they are not the same thing. So this is all opinion evidence and the way it's presenting in, in court has to reflect that. And it may be strong opinion evidence based on an expert's testimony, but it's still an opinion at the end of the day. Great. So that's not necessarily how it's presented when I watch CSI or you know, no, other programs like no. that. It's a little bit more nuanced. That's very interesting. Thank you. Yeah. And if you um, do it wrong, if you overstate the value of your evidence, you can either be completely trashed by the other side or it can lead to a miscarriage of justice and that we all obviously want to avoid that so i would never want to stand up in court and overstate the value of a piece of evidence to the detriment of the accused because that's not my job to lead them to be prosecuted my job within a context of a, an investigation is to compare one thing to the other and to be honest, it doesn't matter who has asked you to do that comparison, the prosecution or defense, it doesn't matter. The report will say exactly the same thing, regardless of which side you've been, you know, your services have been acquired by. Because that's how our justice system works, or at least that's how it should work. And so as an expert, you have to be very conscious that your evidence has to be objective and fair and balanced. Excellent. Thank you. Okay, so that segues relatively neatly into the next thing I wanted to ask you about, which is your uh, your book, Mothers Who Murder, in which you re-examine some of that evidence and try and take a, a new perspective uh, through, through the combination of your expertise. And in some cases, even uh, 
ask that question about the miscarriage of justice. You know, has justice been done here? So can you tell us just maybe give us an example of uh, one of the cases that you re-examined through that book uh, and how you've come to maybe a different perspective or, or reassess the person's likelihood of their, their guilt, I suppose? Yeah, I think that segues really nicely, actually, between the kind of hard science and the social science or behavioural science, because an example I would take from that book would be Kelly Lane. So she's the woman who in 1996 had a baby daughter called Tegan and um, in the early 2000s was actually, or 2010, was sent to prison for murdering Tegan because Tegan has never been found. So brief history, Kelly Lane was a water polo player, successful, and she was also fairly promiscuous. So her lifestyle came into the whole court case when she was eventually prosecuted. She had two abortions quite early on. Then she had one child it was too late to abort, which she gave up for adoption. And then she had Tegan, which was the fourth child. She then had a fifth child she gave up for adoption. And then later on had, had a sixth child um, who she still has contact with. Now the issue of the fifth child, so the second adoption, led to the authorities looking for Tegan. And when they couldn't find Tegan, the question became, where is Tegan Lane? And now there's been a lot about this in the media. There have been podcasts about it. There's been documentaries about it. Now that one comes up because, well, let's look at the evidence for Kelly Lane having harmed Tegan. So she was successfully prosecuted for murder. There is no body, no body's ever been found. There's no evidence any crime has ever been committed, let alone murder. There's no witnesses that a crime was committed and there's no motive either. But for doing this, because if you think about that situation, she had she had the abortions, then she had did the adoption, and if you were going to believe the prosecution case, she then murdered the fourth child, and then reverted back to adoption for the fifth child. So forensically, you go, okay, there's no evidence of any crime, but behaviorally, when you lay that layer on top, that's not what people do. If they find a way of dealing with a situation people follow that path of least resistance. She already knew that you can just hand the baby over to social services if you don't want to take care of it. Why would a woman who's intelligent and articulate, who's already gone through this process, take that child from hospital, but before you even get home, murder that child, and then go back to you know adoption out for the fifth child? It doesn't make any sense behaviorally. And so, back in 2014 when i wrote the book that case really caused me some concern so from a forensic level i couldn't say that there's evidence beyond reasonable doubt she should be in prison because it's the lack of evidence it's the lack of tegan but lack of evidence shouldn't send you to prison for murder and behaviorally it didn't fit either with what we know about you know crime and the way people commit crime so they were both levels at play there. And I think I was one of the first people to really start questioning that case. And since then, um, for various reasons, it's really kind of blown up and we're waiting to see whether the attorney general will actually grant um, a review, a judicial review in that case, based on so much information that's come forward over recent years. So she's got a number of years left in prison, but we'll wait to see what happens with the attorney general's decision, hopefully soon. That's a fascinating case and um, 
I really appreciate the, the, a few things about the way you talk about these cases and have had the conversation in you know, a very respectful tone and, and seeking uh, that sense of justice always, like looking for the way that um, we can uh, make sure that our justice system is functioning well and the evidence is there. And So that's, uh, that I, I think is a really key part, it seems to me, about your approach to the combination of these hard and soft sciences is that they're, they're working together to try and find the, the fairest, most just outcome and, and understand these, these key issues like violence and murder from, um, from a connected up point of view. And that's kind of leading into my next question for you is that then the whole point of this podcast is to try and see the connection uh, between violence as a, a personal trouble and sort of a public issue so how do we understand it not simply as something that bad people do uh, but actually is, is part of a, a responsibility uh, for a, a collective response you know it's crime and violence is something that's produced out of the way our culture and society works is there anything that you can speak to in that that you think uh, your perspective and approach um, teaches us about the way that, that violence and crime is more than just a personal issue but is also a public issue or, or vice versa, the connection between those two? Sure. I, I think domestic violence would be a good example of that. Um, people don't like to talk about it. It's one of those crimes that's very covert and kept behind closed doors. And there's still very much a sense of that now. And I think people like to think that it's something that happens within families but you know it's not something especially years ago it's not something that's really talked about but clearly this is a massive social problem but it's no good just saying you know you get bad people and they're violent we need to look at the reasons why we have such high levels of domestic violence certainly within certain communities and demographics but also across the board so what is it about our society that's you know, leading to these levels of violence where we have one woman being murdered every week on average by a male partner. What is it about the way males and females interact in society, for example, that means that males sometimes cannot cope egotistically when their female partner wants to leave, and that's often that moment when the really high levels of violence, you know, happen. The woman tries to leave or she gets another partner and the the male that's been you know turned aside for better way of saying it cannot cope with that situation so what is it about males who basically feel almost ownership over their females so that if they you know walk away they can't cope there's something going on between males and females and we're beginning to have that discussion you know the me too movement was massive last year how males talk about females i am concerned sometimes it can go too far you know, and when the rhetoric gets so heavily feminist that males stop listening and even females stop listening because it just becomes so caught up in a different kind of really extreme kind of radical feminism, I think that can be equally harmful. But if we keep the conversation moderate and say, what is going on between males and females and also within um, homosexual relationships as well, there's high levels of violence that we still don't talk about. So what is going on in our community where violence is used as a communication method of saying, you know, you can't leave me. I can't cope with that. Mm. And I think that's a conversation we're beginning to have now, which we need to have, you know, people are dying. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really important, thank you. Um, 
Yeah, so you, I can see in the way that you've answered that that there's the combination of the, the logical hard science thinking about um, you know what's the issue here as well as some consideration for that more social aspect the criminological aspect of gender dynamics but you wanting to keep that conversation the tension between those two rather than allowing just to escape into um, let's like you said the more radical voices that perhaps alienate people from the conversation it's important that we we have this difficult conversation and start addressing these issues that's yeah, very sure. cool and I even find myself with some of the more radical voices and some of the things I read finding that frustrating like I was reading this feed on Twitter the other day and it was about this woman had written to all men, you know, um, understand that when you when you get out of a lift, don't follow a woman out of a lift if it's only the two of you in there. If there's a space next to her on the train, don't sit next to her. She'll find that threatening. And I just read this whole list of things which this woman obviously thought other men should, well, men should know about when they feel threatened. And they were putting it in the context of all women feel this. Now, I can't say I've ever been in a lift with a man in a general normal situation and worried about him following me out. You know, never, it's never occurred to me, if there was a seat next to me on a train, I wouldn't feel threatened if a man sat down and he was behaving normally. So I think this whole men you have to keep away from women because we are all fearful of all of you is equally as problematic when women are speaking for all other women. And I'm like, am I the only one who actually doesn't fear all men you know i just and so there's that other kind of dialogue going on when and all the men on the feet were going oh i never realized that oh now i'd get out of the lift first so i don't scare the woman i'm like i'm not a delicate flower you know i don't feel fear every time i come into contact with a male i don't know there's got to be some level of balance in this discussion otherwise i think it goes so far the other way that you know people are going to start to get frustrated with this you know there's just got to be respect between the genders and an understanding that it doesn't mean all women live in all fear of all men all the time. That is not the discussion that I want to be having. Mm. That's the difficulty with generalisations is that it excludes and overlooks any sort of aberration or, or minority group or anybody who would be different to the, yep. the norm, the supposed norm, the assumed norm. And I find it really interesting that uh, as somebody who has studied violence and some fairly full-on sort of dark uh, ideas, you're the one who's saying, I'm not always fearful. I actually find that quite refreshing. <laughs> because I do assess the situation. So if I were walking down a street at night or I felt that it was a, um, an unsafe situation and there was somebody walking close behind me, I would assess that for levels of danger. But going about my normal life, I may be taking the situation in, but unless something's going to trigger my kind of spidey senses to go, there's a problem here, I'm not constantly living in fear. And I don't want to live in a world where we live in fear all of the time. And I just think that nobody can speak like no woman can speak for all other women because it's all about our individual experiences and how we interpret a situation. So for, I think everyone kind of needs to bit, like, dial it back. Not all men are violent and not all women are scared. You know, let's just, there's a nuance in there that is being ignored in that kind of discussion. And then you kind of lose the middle ground because everyone goes, well, I don't feel like that. And it just becomes this battle of the sexes, which isn't going to help anybody. 
And I think that leads us into the, the next little bit of the conversation well as well, because you said you, you, know, you would assess a situation on, it, on its merits almost, uh, and I, I was asked you to recommend a few resources uh, for people who wanted to learn a little bit more about what we've been talking about. Uh, and as we were preparing, you said that some of these resources are helpful for getting a realistic picture of what crime looks like, so then perhaps we can assess those situations a little bit better. So can you tell me, um, tell us what those resources are and what people should be looking for when they're, when they're reading them? Yeah, so the first resource that I've selected is actually the Australian Institute of Criminology website. So that's aic.gov.au. And basically, this is a great website if you actually want to know what the real data is telling you about crime trends in Australia. So they, they publish a lot of significant material and they've been doing so since the kind of mid-70s. So it's really worth a look. So all that stuff that's being presented to you in the news or whatever, then just kind of, you can take that kind of with a grain of salt and then go to these kind of sources and say, what's really happening? So I'm on the website now, just as we're chatting and just looking at their most recent publications. Um, there's something on there about predicting online fraud victimization in Australia. The second one down, does CCTV help police solve crime? And then we've got um, one about orphanages Volunteerism and child sexual exploitation in Asia. Um, another one about image-based sexual abuse, victims and perpetrators, and it goes on. So there's lots of different examples on here um, of different topics people may be interested in, and you get to understand the real data. Oh, one that's just jumped out to me, filicide offenders. Now, filicide is the intentional harm of a child by a parent or caregiver, so that fits within my first book that we were talking about earlier. So you can actually look at see what the data is actually telling you. So if you really want to understand what's going on, how it's going to impact different parts of society, the AIC website is a really great resource. Excellent. Oh, thank you for that. And there were a couple more that you were recommending? Yeah. So another one if you want to kind of get an idea of what the police are doing. So this is another one of my favourite websites, um, AFP. So the Australia Federal Police look at all sorts of the most serious crimes, but again, give you the context for it and get a sense of really how prevalent and prolific these crimes are in society. So they talk about um, drug seizures, guns, etc. all of the major issues that you may be fearful of. They have a news and media section where they'll kind of be pumping out information, media releases on different topics. So again, it's somewhere where you can go where you can get more reliable, um, less kind of popular information. It's not the stuff that's necessarily going to be clickbaits on Twitter, but it's going to give you a greater sense of what are the main problems in Australia that the police are dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. So that's my second one. And the third one is more of an international flair. It's United Nations Interregional Crime and Justice Research Institute, which is unicri.it. And again, it gives you some notion of what the UN are really looking at. And going the list of main topics, it's looking at artificial intelligence and robotics, um, counterfeiting environmental crimes, looking at international criminal law, juvenile justice. Those are just a few of the examples. So again, if you want to know what's really going on in the world, you can actually go and look at some of these sources and make up your own mind rather than just taking in what you're seeing on the news and kind of without really objectively reviewing that and looking at, well, what's that news outlet? All they're trying to get me to do is follow that story. They just want clicks. 
that's not what these other websites are about. The AIC, AFP, United Nations don't care about the clicks. They're about sharing information. Perfect. All right, so we can do a little bit of a fact check ourselves yeah, uh, on, when we're watching the news. And yeah. yeah. Excellent. Yeah. All right, thank you so much for that. I'll put uh, the links to those to in the show notes so people who are listening can, can look those up. Um, we're coming to the end of our time, but I wanted to hear a little bit about or give you a chance to plug, I suppose, what you're working on now. So I think you're working on a new book. Is that right? Yeah, so I'm working on a new book about Australian cold cases. So it's called Bad to the Bone. And, uh, and I didn't come up with that title. I like the title, but I cannot claim that. A makeup artist came up with that title. I was like, no, Interesting. Like, yeah, I know. So I was, I was getting ideas from other people because I'm not very imaginative. And so I was like, I need a great title. And she came up with that. So, yeah. And it's about cold cases. A lot of them um, people would know. So there's some of the most infamous cold cases. So Beaumont's in there, the missing Beaumont children. Um, there's also some more recent, much more recent, and some that have been solved. And the reason I put those in is because they may have been solved in a really interesting way. So, for example, I put the case in of Carly Pierce Stevenson and Candelise Pierce, who's a young woman whose body was found in Belangelo in 2010. And her daughter, Candelise, was the two-year-old that was found in South Australia in 2015 in the suitcase. Now, I've put that case in because it's the very first case I covered for Wanted when I did that in 2010 on Channel 10. And we were trying to identify the mother at that point when she'd been found in Belangelo. We didn't identify her, but that was the point of the story that I did. Um, and that case is interesting because it was only solved when the baby was identified, when Candelise was identified via a DNA test. And it came down to basically luck, the police doing great kind of footwork, basic, you know, basic police work, forensic science and help from the public. And it combined all of those things that led to Daniel Holden only a few, maybe two months ago now, being found guilty of both murders. Um, and he will be in prison for the rest of his life. There was um, no parole period set. And I'd been on that case. I'd looked at that in 2014 when I did Wanted. And I went when he was sentenced. I wanted to see the end of that case. And, and so I've stepped the reader through the evidence um, and how it was solved and the outcome. And to see the resolution of somebody, because that was a particularly nasty one, um, see him be found guilty and know that he's not going to hurt anyone else was really quite powerful. I wanted to see that moment. Um, so there's a range of cases in there, some quite old, some much newer. Philip Vasili's in there that I mentioned earlier, the one in the Bahamas. Um, so yeah, it's some cold cases mixed in with some that were just solved in an interesting way that the audience or reader may engage with. Wow, that sounds really interesting. I uh, yeah, that's probably not my idea of bedtime reading, uh, but <laughs> that's okay. Not about um, to murder their children either, probably, but you know, hey. But definitely, uh, the way that you go about approaching these cases is just so interesting. I would absolutely look forward to reading that when it comes out. Well, so I'm thank you for telling us about that. We get it. We finish this. I'm going back to editing it. So I've submitted it. I'm now going through all of the edits. So um, yeah, Perfect. it'll be out in September. So yeah, fingers crossed. People find it interesting. And again, I just want people to think. I'm not telling them what the answer is. I'm just saying, right. here's the information. And then going, what do you think? Mm, perfect.
Perfect. Oh, that's really interesting. Well, if someone wanted to uh, make sure that they were going to know when that came out and they wanted to follow you on the internet in a totally non-stalking way, yeah, uh, how, how would they go about following you? Where could they find you? Oh, Twitter's always a good, um, good place. So I don't have Facebook. I actually deleted that after all of the issues um, with security of data. And to me, social media is more about outreach than, you know, I have friends, I talk to them. I don't feel the need to do it through my computer. I don't know, I think I'm about a, you know, I'm a bit of an outlier in that way. So Twitter, really, um, is a professional platform. So it's just my name at Twitter, Santhi.Mallet. And I always, it's um, pushing out kind of things that anyone interested in criminology or forensic science may be interested in, but I will certainly be letting people know when the book is released. I think it's a bit like having a baby at least it's the closest I've got to having a baby. <laughs> it's like, but once it's over, you forget the pain. That's what women say, isn't it? There you go. That's what I've heard, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time today, Zanthi. It's been a fascinating conversation. There's some excellent links there to follow up. Um, look, yeah, we just really appreciate the perspective of the work that you do. So thanks for joining us. Thanks. Good to talk to you. Links to the resources discussed in the podcast are provided in the show notes. If you like the podcast, please share it widely. My name is Ben Lomar and thank you for listening to Exploring Violence and Society.